Titus chapter 2, Paul tells Titus, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, again, we thank you that as believers in you, that you have revealed in our hearts the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed God and the only Savior. And Lord, as we come before your table, remind us of these truths, especially in light of Missions Month, even in light of the fact of our the political season, that when it's all said and done, you hold all things together by your might, that you are actually directing this world to a specific conclusion. Lord, that we are safe in your arms, as it were, because we are safe in Christ. And so, Lord, help us as believers to be rejoicing, to have great confidence as we live this life on this earth, knowing that the earth is passing away, that someday perhaps we will die and meet you or else be raptured out of here and not have to die. But either way, we're going to be perfected and we will be glorified, even given a new body. Lord, remind us of all these truths, because sometimes the weight of this world can really weigh us down. But as we come before your table... Help us to remember all the things that really really are important, and that is that you died for our sins, that we are part of your family. And Lord, if there's anyone here that has never received you, may today be their day of salvation. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You can, uh, you'd like to turn in your Bible. The first place will be 2 Corinthians. Let me just say that, you know, we're going to be going on to Missions Month, and um, this is really actually a transition. I decided not to do a, a message on Daniel. Uh, it kind of actually relates to Daniel, because think about it, Daniel was a politician. He was third in the, uh, uh, of Babylon, third leader of Babylon, um, third in rank. But also, we're in Missions Month, coming up to Missions Month, and, and you say, well, how does a po- political message um, have to do with missions month. Well, we're going to be finding out what is really the priority of a Christian. So really, this message really is somewhat of a transition to kind of hit all those different things. Uh, I will say this. It's a, this is a, one of the harder messages I have to preach. The reason is, is because it actually goes against my own self-preservation. <laughs> uh, we have a tendency to vote and think on what, how is it going to benefit me most. And, and you'll see. By the way, I'm, I'm not, I know that there's going to be some who probably are going to be frustrated with me. Uh, you might even get angry with me. I hope you don't throw anything. But uh, the point is, is you may not agree with everything that I'm going to say. I, I've been struggling back and forth, um, you know, how much to say, how to say it. There's a lot of questions I would open today with. Like the first key question is, can you be a Christian and not vote Republican? <laughs> By the way, there's an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. I gave you a lot because I know I only have about a half hour and I may not even get to the end. But can you be a Christian and not vote conservative? I mean, that's how, I, how apparently some think. But what if the leading Republican, let's say the leading Republican were, now he isn't, but let's say he was uh, a pro-abortionist or involved in some type of cult, <laughs> Would you be willing to vote for them? 
Uh, is it then our responsibility to vote for the lesser of two evils? I've heard that before, where you shouldn't vote for the lesser of two evils. Um, you know, as, as we think about uh, the candidates, uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, you know, um, again, I'm not going to tell you to not vote for Barack Obama because he is a pro-abortionist. In fact, he would be willing to kill a baby in the third trimester. And I'm not going to tell you to not vote for Barack Obama because he is for gay marriage, which is totally antithetical to what God's Word said. Or that if we continue down the path that we are, we even could uh, literally starve to death because our dollar is going to be worth nothing. There will be you know, chaos in the streets. So I'm not going to tell you to not vote for that guy simply because he is literally destroying America. Um, You know, you just heard what I just said. So, uh, By the way, I'm not also going to tell you not to vote for um, Mitt Romney because he's a Mormon. Uh, again, do you know what a Mormon believes about Jesus? This is what a Mormon believes, that Jesus is a separate God from the Father, that Jesus was created as a spirit child by the Father and the Mother in Heaven, which is Mary. In other words, God the Father and Mary had sex. And from that comes Jesus. Nor the fact that the elder brother of all men, in other words, they believe that Jesus is a brother of Satan. That's what that means. Okay. Again, that his death on the cross does not provide full atonement for all sin, but does provide everyone with resurrection. See, I'm not going to tell you not to vote for Mitt Romney simply because he has a completely wrong and actually a blasphemous view of Jesus Christ. See, that's what we mean by the lesser of two evils. Let me throw in another one. What if there was a third candidate, then he was a Christian, solid in everything, but you knew right from the start he wasn't going to win. He only get 1% of the vote. Would you cast your vote for him versus, let's say, a conservative or Republican, you know? So where do our convictions lie? Uh, another question, is it, is it a serious sin to not vote or to vote for the wrong party? Again, do we sometimes fall into the very subtle trap of making it our responsibility and mission to protect our beloved nation, quote-unquote, from the devilish hands of the liberal left? Is it really the church's mission or even her responsibility to gain political dominance? And we're going to look at a couple of examples where the church tried to get political dominance. Is being a good citizen equal to being politically involved? Because I've heard that one. And if you don't make calls and demonstrate, etc., does it show a lack of courage and commitment to righteousness on your part? I, I know there's a thousand pastors, I think, next week that are going to stand up and break the law and tell you basically who to vote for. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I'm a staunch conservative. It should be obvious who I'm going to vote for. Or maybe not now. <laughs> Have we mistakenly, this is the point, mistakenly linked democracy and political freedom to Christianity? I think we have, by the way. Should we preoccupy ourselves with congressional hearings and presidential campaigns and economic plans? Do we need to form committees and coalitions who will raise millions of dollars to protect the Ten Commandments 
and vigilantly stand against any advance by the immoral minority. Although now I wonder if it is still a minority. It used to be we were the moral majority, but maybe not. Maybe not anymore. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions. And by the way, in 30 minutes, we're not going to answer them all. But I want to show you something that sometimes I think it's an easy yes or no. Well, this is obviously who you're going to vote for. You know what? Up to this point, many times the, con- the, the conservative candidate, to me, honest with you, was pretty much, yeah, that's an obvious. But you know what? It's starting to get more and more fuzzy. And as Christians, we need to know how to respond. Is it wrong? Is it like this? Would it be wrong for you to vote for a pro-abortionist? If there was only two candidates and they were both pro-abortionists. Or something of that nature. You know, you could come up with all kinds of scenarios. It's also very fascinating to me who, that we who believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, the blessed hope, is somehow trying to reform this world, knowing that our theology itself says that this world is spiraling down. It's almost like we're trying to put it on the brakes. Well, we are trying to. By the way, again, self-preservation. Perhaps one of my greatest reasons for involving myself in any politics is not even for myself as much as for my family. You know, the fact that they will not live, and I'm convinced of this, they will not live in the America that I grew up in. It's just not going to happen. But again, should we find, where can we find hope? Obviously, in Jesus Christ. Obviously. But those are some hard questions. And again, as time goes on, I believe in the next four, ten years, we're going to have to even get more and more zeroed in on what is my purpose on this earth as a believer in Jesus Christ? Because I think we've been blurring the lines many times. Now, there's a few lessons from history that we should draw on. And again, just very quickly, again, those who do not learn from history are what? Destined to repeat it. The first one is Constantine's Christian Empire. You go back 1,700 years to 312 A.D. So 300 years after Jesus Christ uh, was resurrected, there was a guy named Constantine. With his army outnumbered 5 to 1, a Roman general named Constantine continued to march on Rome. His confidence was high, based largely on a vision he reportedly received, assuring him of the victory if he conquered in the sign of Christ, which was the sign of the cross. With a cross, of, with a cross on his shield and on the shields of his men, he rode undaunted into battle and undefeated into the capital. Now think about this. He gets this vision. Christ is the conqueror. He's going to be the conqueror through the, through the emblem of the cross. He not only conquers Rome, he becomes the emperor. You know what he does at that point? He makes Christianity not only illegal, he makes it the religion. Okay, now all of a sudden, think about that. Think about being in that moment of time where you were being persecuted on Saturday, and now all of a sudden it's Friday the next week, and now it's the official religion. And what we think should have been such so unbelievably great for Christianity, they were no longer persecuted, they were no longer despised, actually became one of its downfalls. As you know, with the Roman Empire, it split from west to east, and the west was the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the east was the Greek Orthodox Church. And if you track both of those, this is the bottom line of this. When Christianity became the dominant religion, like the politically correct religion, it actually uh, poisoned true Christianity. You got two perversions of Christianity. Both the Roman Catholic Church, that's a perversion, that's works-based religion, and the Greek Orthodox Church. 
Constantine's Christian kingdom did not bring in the utopia that many had hoped. Now again, is it, was it wrong? God allowed it, God used it. But the point is, is just because they had dominance, didn't make, actually Christianity became a perversion versus, versus being purified. It was actually more pure before he conquered. Uh, Calvin's Geneva, you know, rocket up 15 to 1500 AD, 1200 years later. Uh, many of you know John Calvin. Well, I didn't know him personally, but you heard of him. Very strong. Many of the things that were attributed to him really wasn't from him, but from his teaching. Not that he was the one necessarily pushing all this. But by promoting sweeping reforms in the city of Geneva, Calvin was influential in Christianizing the politics of this city. In fact, this is how severe it got. Catholic priests were thrown in prison. Citizens were fined if they missed church. Where's Will? He takes attendance. Let's find out who we need to find. Uh, no. Geneva's children were required to learn Calvin's catechism. Spies were sent out to report on those who did not comply. And resistors were met with excommunication or death. I mean, it was uh, very, very severe if you lived there. In the years that followed, Calvin took practically complete control of the city politics, or at least his people did. His zeal for morality and sound doctrine was black and white. To not be with him was to be against him. It is not surprising then to learn that in one five-year period, there were 76 exiles cast out of the city and 58 death sentences carried out in Geneva. Okay? And again, I mean, I'm, I do believe that much of what Calvin said was correct. But again, very, very severe went awry. As the capital of a country that today, it's interesting, now today there, Geneva, only, or in the country, only um, 7% are Protestants. It never carried on. Okay? And you'd say, well, it was 500 years ago. Well... Still, the point is, is that you can't continue on. It, that, this is the interesting thing. Faith has to be passed on from generation to generation. It only takes one generation to, you know, a, a space, and all of a sudden you, they become heretics. You could do the same thing about the Pilgrims, Massachusetts Bay co uh, Colony. 1629, Mayflower comes over here, Plymouth Colony, Puritans, okay? Pilgrims, Puritans are together. Most of them were Puritans. This is what um, Phil Johnson said. Uh, they wanted to establish a society of believers governed by righteous laws which were enforced by magistrates who were mature church members. In other words, we're going to make the, 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 whatever the Bible says to be the, the, uh, what the uh, colony has to believe. But he goes on, he says, but they were so focused on an earthly paradise. Now catch this. They were so focused on an earthly paradise, they neglected to evangelize their own children. And within two generations, Puritan society was beset with the very same problems they had left England to escape, end quote. See, you can get so focused on the society, you actually lose focus on your priority. And that is evangelism and discipleship. Jesus tells us, you know, go and what? Make disciples. That's our priority. And within a hundred years, Unitarianism and deism, deism, God's out there, but he's not involved in my life. I mean, there's no salvation in deism, was the pre predominant 
religion there. And I think, uh, I think Benjamin Franklin was a deist. I think Thomas Jefferson were a deist. People say, oh, they're Christians. Be careful how you're defining Christian. It, it kind of goes back to like Judges chapter 2 where it said that the people of Israel fouled you know, after the Lord as long as Joshua was, was alive and the elders that were under Joshua, as long as those guys were alive, the people fouled. But then verse 10, it says, but there rose up another generation that did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. You can lose it pretty quick. So what's the lesson in all this? What's the lesson? This is the lesson. Christianizing or moralizing government will never have the long-lasting, God-honoring effects its promoters so deeply cherish. That is actually a quote. So again, Christian po- political efforts are just temporary at best. You know, you put a lot of energy... By the way, again, you're, you're, some of you, your blood is boiling. What are you, are you against America? No, but... But I think this, I think the lines between Christianity, our hope in Christ, the blessed hope, he's coming back, is being blurred by what we've got to save our country. There's a blurring there. In fact, it's so pre- uh, predominant that a lot of even solid Christians forget this. Wait a second, our job is to evangelize. Our job is to walk with Christ. Be careful. Again, I had the unique opportunity of being uh, down at Liberty University, um, Jerry Falwell in the 80s, the early 80s, moral majority. I mean, he, I mean, when I went to class and I mean, that's all you ever heard, heard, heard. I mean, just ad infinitum. And, but the, the, the interesting thing I always found with the 80s is how quickly it was erased in the 90s with Clintons. <laughs> it was almost like it never existed for a while, you know. So again, we have to be careful. We need to have balance. Now again, some of this may seem contradictory. Third point is this. Let's learn from Scripture. Let me draw some things out. But I want to do it in a balanced form. But hopefully at the end you say, okay, but I see the priority. I see the priority. The first thing is this. Should we participate in the political process? (laughs) Should we participate in the political process? I would say categorically, yes. Well, see, this is one of the myths that is out there. God doesn't care about politics. Do you know that's wrong? That's wrong. What do you mean God doesn't care about politics? In fact, Jeff Myers in a little article on four myths, one of the myths was this, God doesn't care about politics. He wrote this. God does care. But he said this, saying that God doesn't care about politics is a kind of like, quote, get out of argument, free card. (laughs) when under withering assaults from the secular elite. It is the equivalent of saying, yes, I am a Christian, but the one true God doesn't care about politics, so please don't judge me by the political views of my fellow believers. You know, like just, that's so minimal. Don't even talk to me about it. You're even showing your carnality to want me to think about politics. I don't think that's the, that's not the direction I'm heading here. In fact, I like Adrian Rogers. He was an old pastor. He just passed away, I think, this last year. But he said this. He says, it is, quote, it is inconceivable that God would ordain government and then ask his people to stay out of it. No. But remember, politics is evil in one sense. It's, it's full of evil people. 
We're all sinners, and most of them are not saved. I like what R.C. Sproul says often. He says, quote, All of us are really a lot more like Adolf Hitler than we are like Jesus Christ. So, you know, when you look across the aisle and you say, those people are evil, you know what we really should think? Like, duh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure, you have some Christians in politics, but let's be careful. Should you vote? I would say categorically, yes. You should express your political and, uh, and biblical beliefs there. Now again, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher because, you know, you start finding out, you know, this, well, this is what really this person believes in religion. Um, I believe, to give you guidance, I believe I, I look at what the candidates are pushing and say, okay, what can be the best for my fellow man? That, that would be how I de- determine who I'm going to vote for. Because, again, complete non-involvement is contrary to God's word. It says in Galatians 6, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. So I'm going to look at the candidates and say, okay, their policies, which, what would be best for the common good? Does that make sense? See, I'm not worried when I'm voting for them. I'm not voting for their salvation. And again, by their own admission, uh, it, I don't believe either one of them are safe. So, okay, we've got two people who, who hate God. Now let's just decide which one we're going to vote for. So, again, not non-involvement, but it should not become an all-consuming passion to be politically involved. See, if it becomes an all, that's wrong. Where all your energy is being poured in here. If only that guy will get elected, then everything will be okay. Now again, just read the Bible. That's not going to be... I do believe we are coming to the end. Don't you see the things lining up? Bob McKnight, do you believe things are coming to an end? And... Yeah, I mean, Bob has been a prophecy teacher and learner for many, many years. I mean, it's just very, very clear. We are coming to the end. We're not trying to save America. I hope you don't go that path. Now again, I'm going to vote what is best for the common good. Hopefully keep me out of there. Common good, you know, my top is my own children. So, pious apathy towards the political process process is not commendable. You know, pious apathy. Like I told you last week, you know, the pastor who told me, you know, I haven't voted for 30 years. And he was like, you know, like, that's my badge right there. And I'm thinking, you're a fool. You're a fool. You live in a society given the right to do it, you don't even do it. Which, you know, we're kind of an anomaly anyways. Think about it. For years and years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, most societies aren't like, we're going to vote. Like whoever, well, who got killed last and who took over? <laughs> you know, that's how emperors and dictators and you know, despots over the years, it's just like who was in control, who had the biggest army. But, you know, we have a great opportunity. We can, you know, express our opinion. On the opposite extreme, we should not think that the political involvement is, quote, vital to our spiritual growth or evidence of it. Like, I'm participating. That shows I'm spiritual. I'm a good citizen. Well, it shows that your citizen, that you are doing what a citizen should do. But it doesn't show your spirituality. Or that it furthers the advancement of the kingdom. Now, that's real important. By voting conservative, moral issues, doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is advancing. Sometimes we get those connected. No, no. What is 1 Peter chapter 2? 
verse 9 say, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's separate. You're a different kingdom. And we'll see that in a moment. So again, we should. Should we participate in the political process? Yes. Should it be our priority? No. Should it be looking towards the blessed hope? Yes. The return of Christ. Again, uh, a second statement. B, what was the condition of the first century when Jesus lived? Let's think back on that. Now again, it's been pretty easy. Actually, it's very easy right now, right? I mean, how many of you, ate? How many didn't eat? We all are eating. We all have a home. We all have heat. I mean, everything is... But think about the first century. Cruel tyrants, dictators, slavery, everything antithetical to democracy. Remember King Herod? He was basically a, just a puppet for Rome, but he got jealous, kill all the babies two and under. I mean, very hard. Then you had all the crucifixions. Sometimes just for, you know, just for something to do, the emperors would just you know, crucify, let's go crucify a hundred slaves today. I mean, can you imagine how horrible? The life and death of a person was literally in the hands of the father. When the baby was born, he literally would do this. That meant throw him out on the uh, garbage heap. That's all. And it was done. And slaves could be used and abused and whatever. Rampant homosexuality, all the Colosseum sport, you know, all that stuff. All that stuff. That's what, that's where the first century, that's where the Bible, that's the context of the Bible when it was being written. So the condition there was horrendous. Sometimes we forget that, that you know, I mean, well, certainly, certainly Jesus would not expect us to go through hard times as a nation of America. Certainly because the blessing of God has been on America. Wait, let's look at history. You're doomed to repeat it if you don't know history, right? Yeah. Was America built on many Christian principles? Yes. Were they saved people? Not all of them. Many of them weren't. Like I said, deists. Universalist. I'm not saying that God is not blessed, and you've got to use that word very carefully. But let's remember that, you know, we threw God out in the 60s. Don't come to our schools, don't, we're not going to pray to you, you know. And what did he do? Okay. How does God judge a people? Let them go down the path of their own destruction. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have to send, uh, you know, sometimes he does the locusts or whatever, but usually it's just, Deal with your own consequences. You decide to go that direction, that's the direction you can go. So if God, but, but this is the point. If, if our hope is in here, then if it goes south, then maybe we'll start questioning God's goodness. Ooh, that's, a, that's a danger right there, right? Is God good whether we're under persecution or not? Is God good whether we've eaten they or not? You know, we, we have to have a strong faith that says, you know, no matter what happens, God is good. God is on my side because God is the one who has saved me. He has brought me into his family. Number three, how did Jesus respond to this? If you go to Matthew 22, and I know I'm just, I'm just kind of doing a, you know, just picking on a few verses and, you know, I think you see the flow of this throughout Scripture. But Matthew 22, how did Jesus respond did he come as a political deliverer or a social reformer? 
Remember when he was asked, you know, who do you pay tribute to? Who are you loyal to? Basically, that's the question, Matthew 22, 21. Who are you going to be loyal to? Who are you going to pay the taxes to? He said this, render therefore to Caesar the things. By the way, what are the things? The things would be uh, taxes and even honor. Remember over in Peter, it says honor the king. So to Caesar, give him what is due. Honor, in the sense of honor under God. I mean, you know, he's... He's still been in place there by God. In taxes, yeah, that's fine. I, mean, I hear Christians say, oh, I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm not saying not to be wise and try to you know, use the system the best ethically to pay less taxes. I think that's good. But you know, it says pay your taxes. But then notice what else he said. The things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God. What are God's things? obedience, loyalty to God's plan, to his purpose, that all things are God. So he says, listen, yes, there are certain things that you owe to Caesar, government, human government, but then this is what, remember the things you owe to God. They are the priorities because it is God who puts in place Caesar. I appreciated uh, um, Frank's ABF today. We were talking about that Jesus Christ holds all things together. No matter what is happening in this world, it is because of the power of Christ holding it together, even the negative. All he would have to do is stop holding us together, and you know what happens? Poof! We're gone. (laughs) Thankfully, he does not, even to the end of the age. So, yes, Jesus Christ Christ cared for the hurting. But his priority was not the temporal physical, it was the eternal spiritual. He didn't come to become a social uh, organizer or a social reformer. No, he came so that we might have life and life abundantly, right? Now think about that. That is the priority of Christ. And by the way, like I said, but did he heal? Yes, but it was also under the understanding that to show who he was. For us, that's important. Should I seek to do what is good for the common good? Yes. That's being Christ-like. But if I start to say, but this is my hope and my energy and everything is going to be poured in, boy, you, you cross the line. See, Christ was not getting his supporters to, quote, capture the culture even if it was by peaceful means. That was not the reason Christ came. He came to establish a new spiritual order. What? His body. He came to establish the church. And it started when he went to the cross and died for our sins so that when we place our faith and trust in him, we could be not only forgiven, but brought into his body, brought into the church, brought into his family. That's what we're... um, going to be celebrating just a couple moments. By the way, I think this is a perfect message for Communion Sunday. At first, I was struggling with it. It's the perfect message. Why? Where's your eyes? Fox News? Jesus Christ. I had to repent. I I I have told you this. This has been a, a long two or three years of me and God having a lot of conversations. And God keeps saying, John, don't hope in those things. One, they don't last. And two, it's idolatry. Keep your eyes focused on me. All right? But again, the priority is the church. 
That's what he's doing on this earth. In other words, he did not come to earth to make the old creation moral through social and governmental reform. He didn't do that. And in fact, as I was thinking about these things in the end time scenario, uh, the old earth burned up new earth, new heaven. Our old bodies, no matter what happens on this earth, I'm going to get a new one as a believer. Now think about that. There's very few other religions that even have that in there. See, if I thought that this was the only body I would get, I'd protect it. Don't, don't hurt me. Right? You know what Jesus says? You're going to get a new body. The worst they can do is kill your body. And just understand, you'll get a new one. Do you see how enlightening that is? How comforting that is? Oh, you mean anything I do on this earth? I might starve. I might be beheaded. I might be um, tortured. And I might have all kinds of scars. and every, yeah, You're going to get a new body. He just tells you ahead of time, listen, just live for me because when it's all said and done, your old is going to be gone and you're going to get a new one. Real, real important. The whole concept of glorification is huge on how I live today. How about the third one? Oh, excuse me, let me finish that quote. So it wasn't about reform, but to make a new creation, quote, his people holy through the saving power of the gospel and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, was Christ, was Christ's priority to be, it was Christ's priority, to, was Christ's priority to be our priority? Yeah, that's how you spell The word is priority, just fill it in. Um, yes. Well, what's the priority? He gave it to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. May, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. By the way, notice that, please. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've been uh, doing some research. There's a church in the area that it's called this Oneness Pentecostalism. It's this. It says this, that Jesus Christ is God. All right, I agree with that. But there is no Father and there is no Holy Spirit. It's this. this it's called modalism. It means this, that uh, in the Old Testament, God appeared as Father. In the New Testament... The same God manifested, keyword, manifested himself as Jesus. Now he's gone. Then he comes back as Holy Spirit. I say, I shouldn't even use the word church. There is a group that meets that thinks that that is heresy. That is blasphemy. That is against God. So again, right here, Matthew 28 even, it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there's, God is Trinity. Teaching them to observe all things. That I have commanded. So that's that's the priority. That's the what we call the great commission. And then finally, what is the real battle then? What is the real battle? The real battle is for truth. <laughs> truth. That's the real battle. Uh, in Second Corinthians chapter uh, five or chapter ten. Excuse me, I said five before. Uh, this is what spiritual warfare really is. You know, you talk about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, you know, telling Satan to get out of here. You know, territorial demons and all this other stuff. That's not, that's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is defined right here in this text. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. What do you mean? Well, it's spiritual. For the weapons of our warfare, do you see the spiritual warfare, are not carnal not fleshly, not physical, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of the strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. 
Let me just read a footnote in this Bible. It says this, Since only the truth of God's Word can defeat satanic falsehoods, therefore we need to use the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. Second part, this is the true spiritual warfare. Believers are not instructed in the New Testament to assault demons or Satan, but to assault the error with the truth. That's spiritual warfare. When you come across somebody and they say, no, Jesus is not God, and you go to John chapter 1 and you say, he's the Word and he's eternal and he is God, you are participating in spiritual warfare. We've got to be about God's business. Spiritual warfare. Number two, it is, a, it is a spiritual eternal battle, not a physical. Jesus in John 18 says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. We don't fight. The cru- actually, the crusades were totally unbiblical. They were fighting for an earthly Jerusalem. And three, it is a battle for the souls of men, the gospel. That's, what the, that's where the warfare is, that we are, pro, we are uh, uh, proclaiming Christ. <laughs> By the way, the world hates that. The world hates the fact that we believe that the Bible presents that Jesus Christ is not only God, but he is the only underlying way to God. Don't they hate that? Oh, you want to get someone really angry, just tell them Jesus is the only way to the true God. Oh, I can't believe that you're so... Narrow-minded, you're so, you know, so, uh, what's the word? Uh, non, um, help me out here. Um, you're not, uh, oh, I lost it. Huh? Tolerant, that's it. She gets a candy bar. No. <laughs> when Paul got saved, Jesus said this, and it's recorded in Acts 26 as to what was recorded. Paul says, quote, he gave me the responsibility to, quote, open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Christ speaking. That's what, that was Paul's agenda. Salvation in Christ, inheritance eternal. I, I, again, I can preach this. But you know what? We so often forget. You see people walking by. You're working with people in the, you know, in, at your place. You have family and friends. And you might talk Republican or Democrats, get into political arguments, and yet they're going to hell. We've got to get back to the priority. In other words, if we do not evangelize the lost and make disciples of new converts, nothing else we do, no matter how beneficial it seems, is of any eternal consequence. Think about it. Whether a person is an atheist or a theist, they might believe in God. A criminal or a model citizen, sexually immoral or absolutely moral and virtuous. Greedy materialist or a gracious giver, pro-abortionist or pro-life. I mean, just take whoever you want. If he does not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, he is going to hell. That's what this is all about. We keep going back. That's right. He saved me for a purpose. And it wasn't um, social purpose. So, we've got to be on the, on the point of where Christ is. And finally, let me give you the fourth one. It is a battle that is not against people. Sometimes with the whole political, this is what gets really dangerous for other people. Their eternal lives are at stake, and we make them the enemy. I, 
Again, at the, at the lowest point of where I was at with this whole political thing, I would even think to myself, well, they can think that now and make those laws, but someday they're going to burn in hell. It is unthinkable that we become enemies of the very people we seek to win to Christ. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? Now, maybe you're not there. Eh, John, I don't even know why you have this problem. I don't even know why you think this politics thing. Anyways, let me end with one final thought. Again, I've, I've used a number of quotes today because it just, they just kind of hit me. I mean, it's like people who have thought deeper than I have thought through this thing. But the final one is this. A politicized faith, a politicized faith, one that says, you know, yeah, it's about Jesus, but, you know, it's also about saving America. A politicized faith not only blurs our priorities, it also weakens our loyalties. Oh, that's a big one. Wait a second. You mean I could have a weakened loyalty to Jesus Christ if I think wrongly about this politic thing? Yeah. Our primary citizenship is not on earth but in heaven. Though few evangelicals would deny this truth in theory, I mean, we all believe, yeah, 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 I believe it. The language of our spiritual citizenship frequently gets wrapped up in the red, white, and blue. Rather than acting as resident aliens of a heavenly kingdom, too often we sound and act like resident apologists for Christian America. Unless we reject the false reliance on the illusion of a Christian American, he uses this idea of illusion. It is an illusion. Evangelism or evangelicalism, in other words, true faith, will continue to distort the gospel and thwart a genuine biblical identity. Boil it all down to say this. If we get our focus off of Jesus Christ and get it on the political system and somehow save, quote, Christian America, then we're not going to be honoring Christ. We're going to actually have an idol in our hearts. And it's no wonder we don't have any peace or comfort and encouragement because actually the Spirit of God is saying, listen, that's not what it's all about. That's not why you're here. That is not why you're here. So, a few things to think about. Vote? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hope in the vote? Absolutely not. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. In fact, what I'm doing right now is this. And next week I'll, I'll even have something in the bulletin for this. But when I would normally turn on or when I would normally get anxious, I start praying. I'm trying to force myself to say, I'm not going to listen to that. I've already decided who I'm going to vote for, but I'm going to pray. Lord, maybe you will have mercy on us. Can we do more? I, I, this is one of the things I had to repent of. I, I, lo- I thought back and I thought, man, all the times I listened hour after hour to Rush Limbaugh when it had absolutely no eternal value. Because I already knew who I was going to vote for. Now, I'm not saying never to turn it. I mean, I'm not going to go that extreme, okay? Don't go there. But all I'm saying is don't we waste a lot of time and a lot of peace because we're not focused on him? Yeah, I think we do. At least I did. So, let's go before the Lord. You might even just, you know, want to talk to him about your own relationship and the anxieties and fears and where is America and what do I need to do? And, and again, just pray and ask God, ask the Lord, open my heart. See, where, where do I need to confess? Make sure I'm walking with you because I don't want to take, partake in an unworthy manner. And if the ushers can come forward. So let's bow our heads in prayer.